stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, <laughs> he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. Desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you ever saw the billboards and ads for this show, you probably never forgot them. It's a stark image of the Statue of Liberty, but instead of Lady Liberty holding up a torch for freedom, Lady Liberty's arm is extended in a salute, a Nazi salute, and there's a sash with the signs of the Third Reich over the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's almost startling to see this. Not startling enough that I actually watched the show, but I've never forgotten the ads for The Man in the High Castle. Does anybody remember this show? The premise of the show is really brilliant. If one thing had gone differently, what would the world be like? That's the question. If one thing had gone differently, if the Allies in World War II had lost, what would the world be like today? If the Allies in several moments during the war had not won a victory, had not stopped an invasion, had not repulsed an attack, what would our world be like today? And so the premise of the show is we're going to imagine that that one event had turned out differently, and we're going to show that the ripple effects would have extended across the entire world. Literally, the world as you know it would not exist. And the thing I love about that, in fact, there's a whole discipline of history that's devoted to this question of counterfactuals. What if one thing had gone differently? What if one little decision or moment or happenstance, coincidental instance of history had gone different? The whole world would have been different. And this morning in, in Matthew's gospel, we're encountering Matthew's version of that question. He's going to tell us this morning what he thinks is the pivotal event. And for us, what is the pivotal event? That if it hadn't happened, the world would be different. In this story this morning, I want you to think about the ripple effect of one changed life. One changed life. The miracle of Matthew's own conversion to Jesus Christ and the story of how that reverberated in the first century and even to now. I'll tell you one thing that reverberates for me. I was, my first name is Matthew, which if Matthew had not been converted, nobody would be naming their kids Matthew. Uh, and I was named after my grandfather, who eventually, if you go back in the chain long enough, I'm sure somebody was named after the apostle Matthew. But the interesting thing about my grandfather's name is it only has one T in it. 
So Matthew is usually spelled with two T's. We only have one T. And at one point, not too long ago before he passed away, somebody reminded him, I guess he had forgotten that I was named after him, and he said something like, well, I hope you gave him two T's. And my mom says, no, we gave him one T because we named him after you. And he goes, well, that was just a mistake at the hospital. And they didn't get it right, and I've had that on my birth certificate ever since. (laughs) And here we are. One little thing. So names in the Bible, just like they do today, were so that you could live up to something. So you get named after somebody because they've had a big impact, or you want your children to grow up to be like some of these qualities. And we actually know from the other gospel accounts, the conversion of Matthew is in Mark and it's in Luke. And we know from these other accounts that Matthew's other name was Levi. Levi, if you remember, is a very, very significant name in Israel. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but it's not just one of the 12 tribes. It is the one of the 12 that is set apart for God. So one of the mantras of the Old Testament that you hear over and over and over again is, the firstborn is for the Lord. Whether that's in your animals that you have on a farm, whether that's your crops, whether that is your own home, whether that's your money, your income, the first is for the Lord. And so all through the Old Testament, that's where we actually get the principle of tithing, is setting aside the first 10% for God. The first fruits of what we get are for God. And up until a certain point, this was true with the firstborn child. The firstborn is to be dedicated to God. But after the Exodus, God decided that instead of it being the firstborn of each family, he was going to set aside a whole tribe for himself. And it was the tribe of Levi. So the Levites in the Old Testament are set aside for God. They are like a substitute for the firstborn of each home. It is an entire bloodline, an entire tribe of Israel that is set apart for God. And later, they are going to be the ones that are going to serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The Levites are the ones who are priests. They take care of the holy things. They offer the sacrifices. And that system comes with certain stipulations. Because they were set apart for God, God himself was going to provide for the Levites. So when Israel comes into the land and they divide up the land among the tribes, you know who doesn't get any land? The Levites. Instead, they get 48 cities scattered across the promised land, and they get a role that basically provides for them. They're the ones that are eating the meat that's left over from the sacrifices. They're the ones who, because they are serving, God has said, I myself am going to be your inheritance. All the other tribes have an inheritance of land and blessing and prosperity through Abraham, but you, Levites... You have been set aside, and I will be your inheritance, God said. They also had six cities of refuge that belonged to the Levites. Because they were set aside for God, they were called to act out certain things of God's character. So they have these cities of refuge where if you were wrongfully accused, or if you committed a crime but it wasn't really your fault, you could run to these cities, and they would receive you and protect you. And in fact, you could not be prosecuted as long as you stayed in these cities of refuge because of the protection of the Levites. 
So you have to wonder when Matthew and Levi's parents named him this. It was almost as though they were saying, he is set apart for the Lord. Now, we don't know if he was a Levite. We just know that his parents, by naming him that, would have evoked all of this momentum, this spiritual momentum into his life. You are going to be a child that is set apart for God who models his character, whose inheritance and riches and wealth and desires and success are all going to come from God himself. So it's ironic, then, in this story that we find out that Levi, Matthew, has become a tax collector. Now, I want you to step back for a moment. A tax collector in the ancient world, this is not just your garden variety IRS employee. The profile of Matthew is not that he was an accountant. (laughs) The profile of Matthew is that he was a thug. He was physically oppressive to the people of Israel. See, what a tax collector would do is in the Roman Empire, which was reigning at this time in Israel, they didn't have enough administrative staff, nor did they want to employ their legions in collecting taxes. So what they did was they went and found native-born people and said, we will give you the authority of Rome to collect taxes, and you can take whatever extra you get. So what a tax collector would do is say, I've got to raise this much, but if I can raise this much from people, I get to keep everything in between. So the most famous tax collector in the New Testament is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, universally hated, he is a chief tax collector. He's on the road to Jericho. He's in a border town. He is collecting tons of money. He is extorting people. He is oppressing people. He is stealing from people. That's the reputation of a tax collector. And so Matthew, Levi, who was destined for a life set apart for God, has actually betrayed his own people. He has forsaken his calling as one of them, and instead, he is a betrayer from the inside. The reason people didn't like tax collectors wasn't just because they were extortioners. It was because they were sellouts. They had basically used the the fact that they were Jews to side with Rome instead of Israel. What makes things worse is Matthew is not like one of those tax collectors who's having a secret change of heart, who's also like coming to church or something. You know, there's nothing that hedges this story where it's like, yeah, but he was like a good tax collector. No, in this story, he is sitting there counting his money at his table. There's nothing that would indicate to us that he has any interest in God that he has any interest in changing his ways, that he's on the verge of repentance. Last week we talked about the fact that God often works beforehand to bring people to him. So you have this centurion who also would have been an oppressor and an unlikely convert, but he's a God-fearer, and he helped build the synagogue. And you're just like, man, that person was just right on the edge. It's no surprise that they became a Christian. Matthew is currently extorting people when Jesus calls him. One day, Jesus walks by his table, he passes by his tax booth, and he goes up to him and he says, follow me, follow me. Maybe one of the most unlikely people in the Gospels, maybe next to Zacchaeus. I think Zacchaeus is the most unlikely person that comes to know Jesus in the Gospels, but maybe Matthew is second. And Jesus comes up to his table and he says, I want you to follow me. 
Now, there's one more thing I want to point out to you about how amazing this would have been in context for somebody in the first century to hear this conversion story. You know, these Gospels, Matthew's Gospel was meant to be read out loud. That's why it's written the way it is. It's grouped in certain stories. It has certain verbal indicators that you, if we were to sit here and read it out loud, you would hear these refrains over and over again. And the way Matthew tells his story is the context or the set of things that he's going to tell you are really important. So, for example, when Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, he then, Matthew then includes ten miracle stories. Uh, that correspond with Moses coming down from the mountain and giving the Ten Commandments. Jesus is a new Moses. He's a new lawgiver, and his Ten Commands are follow him, be forgiven, repent, and turn from your sins. But what's even more interesting in this story is Jesus, in chapter 9, in the first few verses, gets into a boat. He crosses over back into his own city. This is Capernaum. And people bring him a paralytic. And he heals the paralytic, but before he does that, he looks over at the paralytic and he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Before he heals him, before he does anything, he says, your sins are forgiven. And when that happens, the scribes, think like the seminary professors of the day, are like, that's a problem. In fact, that's blasphemy to say that. Because if sins are primarily committed against God... Only God can forgive sins. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, I forgive your sins. It's tantamount to saying, your sins were actually committed against me because I'm God, so I'm going to issue your forgiveness. So these people are scandalized by what Jesus does. And they are saying to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In fact, this is what they end up killing Jesus for afterwards. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think this evil in your hearts? And he says, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And Jesus does something that he does in many places. He goes from the lesser to the greater. He says, just so you know I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to go ahead and heal this person as a proof, as like a down payment. And so Jesus goes ahead and he heals this person. But then, after that, right after this, Matthew tells us of the greater miracle, right? So Jesus says, which is harder, to heal somebody or forgive their sins? And it's kind of a split thing. You're like, well, I mean, I think it would be harder just on the surface because of the proof to heal someone. But Jesus' point is, no, it's much harder to forgive their sins. So he's like, so I'll just do both. I'm going to take a person who is paralyzed, who no one ever expected to get up and walk. Nobody ever expected for them to be restored to their condition. And I'm going to heal them. They're going to walk out of here. Then, right after that, he says, and now I'm going to take a spiritual paralytic. I'm going to take somebody that nobody would expect could ever be spiritually healed and spiritually walk out of here. I'm going to take a tax collector, and I'm going to forgive their sins, and I'm going to heal their heart, and they're going to follow me. This context would have just been amazing to somebody listening, saying, this is even more miraculous than making a paralytic well again. You made a tax collector a follower of God. So Matthew, in telling this story, is really helping us to see how truly remarkable and miraculous Jesus' call to him from his tax booth to follow him would have been. 
Now, this is Jesus' home base. So if, you, if you're reading the context, this is in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum is not very big. It's maybe smaller than Carlton Landing. Of course, they packed more people in than we do, but it's a very small area. And Jesus had been doing miracles all over Capernaum. And he had been healing people, he had been teaching, he had been in the synagogue, and everybody in Capernaum had to have known who Jesus was, including Matthew. Right, so this isn't, sometimes we think every story is like the apostles Peter and Andrew, who Jesus just shows up one day and he's like, hey, you guys follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, and they decide to come, which they, because they were followers of John, probably knew who Jesus was, but Matthew definitely knew who Jesus was. He just wasn't interested. He knew that there was a miracle worker, a guy that claimed to be God in his town, but he was just doing his best to ignore it, go on about his business, do what he felt called to do, until something changed. What's the difference in this story? Jesus personally calls him. It's no longer just a generic, hey, if anybody would like to come and follow me, you should do that. It was a you, Matthew, you should follow me. I want you to be part of my disciples. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, points out that Jesus looked at Matthew sitting there with his pen in hand, taking down numbers and updating his accounts, and he must have thought to himself, that's the guy I want writing my biography. That's the one I want writing the first gospel of the New Testament. Jesus saw something in him and he reached out personally and called him, come, follow me. God really has set you apart for something incredible. In fact, God has set you apart for something even greater than the Levites were set apart for because the Levites and the temple and the sacrifices and the land all point to Jesus. So you've been set apart to come and follow me. The specific call is what changed Matthew's heart to come and follow Jesus. It must have reminded Spurgeon of his own calling. See, Charles Spurgeon, when he was a teenager, he was traveling, and he was not a Christian, he was traveling on a Sunday, but there was a big snowstorm, and so he can't go as far as he wants to go, but on a Sunday morning, he ducks into this little town, and he passes a sign for a primitive Methodist church that's having services. And so he goes in mostly just to get warm, more than anything, and he sits down, and it turns out that the pastor, the preacher of that church, was snowed in and couldn't make it that Sunday. So one of the deacons, who was a shoemaker, decides that he's going to preach that morning. And he goes up to the pulpit, and he opens his Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, which says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he says, he could barely speak. He wasn't a polished speaker at all, but he's preaching about this text, and then something kind of odd happens. As he's saying, look unto him, look unto him, he says he leans over, and you've got to remember in these old churches, they have those elevated pulpits, and he leans over the podium, and he points down at Charles Spurgeon and says, you look to him and be saved. They don't teach you to do that in seminary. In fact, they tell you, not to do stuff like that in seminary. But in that moment, Spurgeon's heart came alive for the first time. And he realized this isn't just everyone should generically look. I've got to look and be saved. And in fact, the amazing thing about this story is, to this day, nobody knows who that preacher was. 
Nobody recorded his name. Nobody followed up. He just went on his journey. But that moment changed him forever. He became the prince of preachers. His sermons afterwards were printed in the newspapers in London. And they had such powerful effect that people that were making butter would cut up pieces of old sermons from the newspaper and wrap their butter. And people would read what was on their butter and get saved because of it. And his ministry echoed across all of England and all of the empire because one person said, not just anybody, you follow me. You look to Christ. You specifically, God has a plan for you. Look unto him and be saved. Jesus saw something in Spurgeon. He saw something in Matthew. He sees something in you. He sees something in me that previously wasn't there. But when he calls you to follow him, it comes to life. In fact, I was in Oklahoma City a couple of months ago, or maybe a year ago, speaking at Crossings Chapel. And one of the teachers that I had in high school, actually at OCS, now works at Crossings. And I was talking to the headmaster a couple of weeks ago. I didn't, I'd never heard this before, but she came up after I'd preached my sermon, and she said, is that the same guy that went to OCS? And he was like, yeah, I think you taught him. She's like, Really? He was such a punk in high school. God saw something. He saw something. I didn't see. They didn't see. Matthew's friends didn't see. The other disciples didn't see. They would have been mortified. You mean we've got to hang out with this tax collector now? You can't be serious. We've already got a zealot with us. We've got a tax collector. We've got this motley crew of fishermen Jesus, maybe your management skills are not up to par, but Jesus saw something in these people. And on that day, two words changed Matthew's life forever. Follow me. Now, something really interesting happens after Jesus calls Matthew. Look at verse 10. So Matthew is called, he rises up, he follows him, and then all of a sudden it says, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house. And there's some dispute here over whether this is Matthew's house or Jesus' house. But they're at a house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is one of the most powerful sentences in the New Testament. Matthew, a tax collector, gets saved. Next sentence, many tax collectors and sinners are at a dinner party with Jesus. See, God didn't just save you so that you could be saved and all would be great. He saved you as almost like a little splinter cell now in your group who is inviting people to come and know him. God, actually, maybe his plan to reach your friends and your family was to have you follow him, and then you do the inviting and the calling so that they would meet Jesus. And they're eating a meal together. This is an intimate Thing. Levi, Matthew, throws a party. He invites all of his tax collector buddies, and they're eating. They're companions. That's what that word means, is to eat together. They now have a bond around Matthew's table, and they are coming into contact with Jesus. Have you ever noticed how much of Jesus' ministry takes place around tables? You know, there's a reason, that it, and it stuck that Jesus was accused of being a glutton because he was going to dinner parties all the time. And he was going not, not just with the Pharisees and the scribes who were fasting all the time. He was going with the people that loved to throw lavish parties. 
He was accused of being a glutton because he ate with the kind of people that you would think, oh, they are gluttonous, they are slaves to their urges and their stomachs, and Jesus must be like them. And Jesus is charged of that because he's going where the people who need to meet him are. And one of the easy applications for us is some of us need to grow in throwing dinner parties for Jesus. It's as simple as that. Jesus comes to Matthew, his life has changed, and he thinks, what can I do to have other people have the experience that I had? Well, what did we used to do? Well, we used to all get together and have dinner together, so we're just going to keep getting together and have dinner together, but we're going to have Jesus there. And Jesus is going to talk to these people, he's going to call them, and they're going to follow him. So many of us, it's not complicated. All you need to do is do the things that you used to do and have Jesus in the middle of it. That's one of the best evangelism strategies that you could ever have, and it is so neglected. Have people into your home and tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's, it's as simple as that. If you love someone enough, you're going to talk about it. And in fact, if you create a setting, and I'm not talking about just uh, surprising people with this, but if you create a setting where you say, I really want to tell you something that's going on in my life, Jesus should work his way into that. If you're following him, and if you're close with people, there are avenues everywhere for you to talk about what Jesus had done. It makes me wonder, what was it that they loved about him, though? You know, Jesus, sometimes we think, well, yeah, but if you invited other people and you're real judgmental and telling everybody to repent and all that, nobody will come. People loved being around Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners loved being around Jesus. And it's not because Jesus was just telling them, hey, you're fine the way you are. Jesus preached a message, and in that message, they saw something that they desperately needed. He had something that they wanted, that deep down in their souls, they knew they were looking for. Deep down, they had been wanting it, and now Jesus is putting a name on it. See, what's so amazing is Matthew tells us later that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when somebody found it, they went and sold everything they had to buy the field so they could get the treasure. Who do you think that was meant for? I mean, I think it's great for us. I think it's good for everybody, but his tax collector buddies. And he says, it's like a pearl of great price, a perfect, beautiful pearl that you find at auction, and you go home and you empty out your savings so that you can buy that pearl. He's putting his finger on what the general sin and need of this group was. They wanted to find their fulfillment in wealth. That's why they became tax collectors. I'm willing to betray my people. I'm willing to be ill thought of, but I am going to be fabulously rich. That's the mentality of a tax collector. And Jesus says, you want to be rich? How about the pearl of great price? The kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure you could ever find. It's the greatest financial, spiritually financial move you could ever have to sell everything else, give up your reputation, give up your dreams, give up your goals, because then you will have the true treasure that's hidden. I mean, Jesus had a way of putting his finger on the deepest longings that people had and showing them that those things were only fulfilled in him. That's the message of the gospel, is at root, everything that we pursue outside of Christ is a substitute 
for the fact that we were made to be found and fulfilled in him. Our deepest satisfaction as a human being is to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And part of bringing people to know Jesus is to show that the only true and lasting fulfillment is in him. So Matthew gathers all of his tax collector buddies and he introduces them to Jesus. And then something else happens. And up until this morning when I was looking over my notes, I had something unexpected happens. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, this is not unexpected. Look at what happens next. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who, have, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Every time Jesus does something like this, you know what happens in the Gospels? People grumble. People are like, what is he doing? Why is he hanging out with them? What's, why is he around those people? And you know what? This is just a truth. When people come into contact with real grace, there's always going to be grumbling. There's always grumbling. And it's just part of the human condition. Even if, as we are Christians, we so quickly forget what it's like to be forgiven and transformed. We, we forget so quickly what it was like before we knew Jesus. And so these people who are supposed to be the religious elites are grumbling because Jesus is forgiving sinners. It's just unbelievable. It's like the quote attributed, I don't know who originally said it, but it's attributed to Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? Because that's where all the money is. <laughs> why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because that's where the people that need to be forgiven are. That's the people that need grace. <laughs> when, I first did, when I first started doing college ministry, we had a volleyball night. This was really early in, in our ministry, and we had a guy who came to Christ, and he was a drug dealer. And so he comes to our Wednesday night volleyball, and he starts inviting tons of his buddies. I mean, like, I don't know if it was people he had bought and sold from. I don't know if it was just friends and associates. But he starts bringing all these people to our volleyball night, which was awesome. But I'm looking over one night when they're all here, and I'm kind of, you know, 20 or 30 yards away. And all of a sudden, I see this whole group of guys, and they're tossing a football around. They're having a great time. And they all start taking their shirts off. And they've got tattoos everywhere, and they're just having a grand time throwing them on the ground. And right about this time is when the other church programming is letting out. And so you've got 2,000 people driving out, and the, the football is going over their cars with these guys that are just tatted up. And then the next time I look, they're lighting up cigarettes and just having a blast. And I knew immediately in that moment what was going to happen. Ten minutes later, the security guard shows up. Hey, just checking in. Oh, really? Really? Just randomly checking in over here. The next morning, I get an email. Oh, you know, this is a smoke-free campus and, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, we're trying to bring people to know Jesus here. Like, we're, we're trying to get these people who, yes, of course, they're sinful and lost and rough around the edges. That's why they need Jesus. Like, that's why we're trying to get them together and tell them about the gospel is because they don't have their lives together. All the people that do have their lives together don't need them. So we're going to have to endure a little bit of visual inconvenience to have these people here so we can tell them about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. This is like going into a cafeteria at a hospital 
and then complaining that all the sick people ruined your dining experience. It's like, I mean, what did you think this was? Jesus goes into these situations that socially would have been such a faux pas for him other than the fact that his mission was to seek and save the lost. Not the pretty good, not the they pretty much already got it, they just need a little extra boost. The lost, the lost. Are we comfortable being around lost people? Are we comfortable being around people that's like we share nothing in common other than the fact that I know Christ and I want you to know him. I want you to walk with him. Imagine what it was like for Matthew just three chapters earlier to record Jesus' words, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. When Matthew came to Jesus, he still loved money. When Matthew came to Jesus and he was forgiven of all his sins, he was still committing sins. In fact, like I pointed out, he was like in the middle of committing one, and Jesus calls him to follow him, and he gets up and goes. It probably took a while for that idol to die in Matthew's heart, but that's why Jesus says, follow me, right? This is why Jesus doesn't just say, hey, believe in some abstract historical truth that I'm going to rise from the dead and you will be saved. No, Follow me, become like me, go where I go, do what I do. And all of a sudden, you're going to see the transformative power of walking with Jesus. See, here's the, way, here's the way the model works biblically. It isn't, hey, when you hear of Jesus, go ahead and start cleaning your life up, and then at some point, you'll be able to trust in him. No, trust in him, get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is going to start rearranging your heart as you go. So we should never expect people to change their life before they have the Holy Spirit. Now, there are principles that if you put them in practice, it will be better for you, obviously. We certainly want to help people with things that will make their life go better, but at root, the way that you change your life is through the presence of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way. So Jesus is scandalizing the people around him, but he is perfectly in line with the heart of God. And I want that to be your takeaway this morning is, all through Matthew's gospel, the heart of God is played out because Matthew knew it. He had experienced it. He's narrating his own call for us to say, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to my friends. I'm writing this so this would happen to you, to your friends. We only hear of one instance in the Gospels where heaven rejoices, and it's when lost people come home. When one sinner, when the one of the hundred in the flock comes back, all of heaven rejoices. The heart of God is not just to save you and to reinvigorate your life with his spirit and his love and his grace, but it is that you would then take on his heart and see that the greatest thing you could give your life to is bringing everybody around you to know him as well. So let's go back to the man in the high castle. Imagine what life would be like if Matthew had never been saved. Imagine what life would be like if you had never been saved. Imagine that there are going to be people in this room and in churches across our region who will be able to say the same thing five years from now because of what you did to bring them to Jesus. There's going to be people who say that the change would be as drastic as the Allies losing World War II in my life 
if somebody hadn't told me to follow Jesus, if somebody hadn't invited me to a party where Jesus was at the center. Imagine how powerful it could be just to invite somebody, like Bert said, just to invite somebody to come to church, just to invite them over to hear your story, just to pray for what's going on in your life with them listening in, even if they don't believe it, because you love God and you're talking to your father. Imagine somebody who looks at the way that you live your life and they see that you have a treasure at the center of your life that they don't have. Imagine that they met Jesus and started following him and you walked beside them and you grew together. Imagine if any of those things happened, what the drastic ripple effects would be like. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Matthew's story because it's our story. And if we know you, we also have been called specifically and personally. We have been invited. We have been looking salvation in the face. Father, we've been given your mercy and your grace and your spirit, not just for us, but for other people. Lord, would you show us and give us the courage to be the kind of witness that Matthew was with his friends and his family and his work associates and his community. Father, even in a little place like Carlton Landing, like Capernaum, would you make our town a place where people come and they have an encounter with you? Father, in our homes and on the streets and sidewalks, in our church, Father, would you call people through us to know you and serve you and follow you? Father, give us opportunities every day. Put people on our hearts. Bring conversations up organically that testify to the radical change and the radical love that's at the center of our hearts. And Father, give us just a little glimpse of the ripple effects. Father, show us how mighty you are, how wonderful your salvation is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, together. And communion, we do it maybe a little differently here than you're familiar with. Communion here, we want to acknowledge the fact that just like Jesus invited his friends to a meal, Matthew invited his friends to a meal with Jesus, communion is the table of the Lord. It is a preview of the banquet that we will get to have with God forever if we trust in him. And so while these little bitty servings of bread and juice may not seem like much. For us, they are just the first taste of the feast that we will have with God forever. And so what we do here is Kirk and Chuck are going to come up this morning, and we are all going to come to the table of Jesus. It's, it's like imitating all over again that call that we had on our lives, and we come to the table to feast with the Lord. And because of that, if you're not a Christian, we would much rather you stay where you are and give your life to Christ, then take this really not that tasteful meal that we have here. This is a symbol of coming and giving our life to him. So welcome to the table of Jesus Christ. Come and eat.